Hello, and welcome to the Frontside Podcast, the place where we talk about user interfaces and everything that you need to know to build them right. My name is Charles Lowell, a developer here at the Frontside. With me today also is Taras Mankowski. Hello, hello. Hey, Taras. Today we're going to be continuing our theme when we think about UI platforms and web platforms, continuing the theme of collaboration. And with us to talk about this is Sam Joseph. Welcome, Sam. Hi, thanks for having me. And so we've already talked a great deal about how the way in which your team collaborates and the, the communication that happens between your team and between the different pieces of software in your system form one of the pillars of the platform that you can't just take lightly. You need to actually be intentful about that. And so I was thinking we could kind of start today's discussion kind of talking about some of those collaborations, one that we've probably all encountered, which is usually teams will be split into people who are focused on front end, people who are focused on back end systems, kind of the services that make sure that all of the nodes that are running on our laptops and our desktops and stuff are you know, running smoothly and error free. And obviously, those two groups of people can sometimes arrive with different sets of priorities, and how do we resolve those priorities to make sure that that communication flows freely? What's interesting about this front-end and the back-end team is that our users are not seeing that separation. They only see one thing. They only touch one thing, right? So it's that they actually see us as one group, but there is tends to be this kind of split between the front-end and back-end, and it's kind of interesting that uh, how the user fits into this. Yeah, obviously in some teams, there's a very clear cut distinction between you know people that only touch the back end and they're only working with the components that are serving you know JSON over the API, and then some people who are very very focused on the the front end uh, and you know twiddling CSS and other bits and pieces, or, or you know even just staying explicitly on the design or on the UX design, and and then there's that mythical full stack developer who's <laughs> up and down the platform. It doesn't run exactly in parallel. But there's this key thing, which is sort of almost how much sympathy or empathy can you have for another person who's not you trying to use something that you set up? Mm. So if there was a direct parallel, you'd say, oh, well, obviously, all the people who are working on the front end are more that sort of person. And perhaps the people on the back end are not so much that sort of person. But actually, I think you can have you know, people who are doing back-end stuff and they're designing APIs very, very thoughtfully for the mm-hmm. kind of people that will consume those APIs. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can have people who are very, very focused on the design and the aesthetics who are not necessarily so plugged into how will someone else use this? How will it fit into their lifestyle, which might be very different from my own? So that's maybe another axis, if you know what I mean, but apart from the sort of the pure technical one of back-end. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. what's interesting is that like everyone is trying to do a great job, right? Everyone is, is setting out to do something really good. Like w- what the definition of good is, like, you know, people might have different, they might be emphasizing, like their way of expressing good might be different. So like someone could be really focused on the quality of their code. Like they want to do their version of doing a really, really good job is doing like the best code that they could write. Sometimes that doesn't necessarily equate to the best user experience. So there is um, uh, definitely, like, you know, I think everyone that I've met, engineers who are writing code, like, almost everyone that I know is trying to do a really good job. You know, everyone uh, doing a good job, it doesn't necessarily always equate to the best user experience. 
that kind of begs the question of how do you define, I think we we had a, a reference, everyone's to make sure that their system is of the highest quality possible. But quality in of itself is not an absolute value. It's relative. In other words, I would kind of proffer the de- a good definition of quality is how well a system is fit to a purpose, right? If it fits very well to that purpose, then as we say, it's of high quality. But if it's fits very poorly to a particular purpose, then we say, well, this is a system of low quality. But what constitutes something of high quality is relative to the purpose. So the question is, is what is the purpose of writing the front end system? What is the purpose of writing the back end system? So it seems to me you're going to have a lot of dissonance if the purpose is divergent. But if they both share the same purpose, then that is kind of a standard of quality on both sides. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And I think what makes it tricky is that actually purposes can evolve over time. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the thing that the front end needed to do for the business today is different tomorrow and the day after. The trick is then is sort of well, front end and back end. As people are trying to do a great job, there's this question of, how far ahead are we looking? So you can talk about important things like, oh, it's sort of, I was getting wrong around, was it uh, closed for modifi- modification, but open for extension. And, and mm-hmm. there's a litany of different sort of coding heuristics of best practices mm-hmm. that say you should kind of, kind of go in this direction. And, and people will, sometimes that will be the, the, the hill they want to die on is like, well, you know, this code needs to be this way because of this thing. And, and the idea is that it's sort of future-proofing them. But I, I think that the messy reality is that you know sometimes the thing that you put in place to future proof the whole system gets canned in 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 two weeks the business mm-hmm. changes it and what have you so so the extra effort that you were putting in on one day to protect yourself against changes in the future actually gets lost and perhaps if only you've been able to deliver you know in a, in a sort of a shortcut hack this one feature that that's what got the next line of funding in i mean i i don't want to advocate cutting corners but do you know what I mean? Like the, 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 yeah, the, absolutely. Gone. I just wanted to, to chime in and vehemently agree with you that the, the, the purpose can change radically, especially if you're in a volatile environment. And so what constitutes good, the good code or the good quality solution can vary just as radically because it needs to fit that purpose. When, when we talk about front end and back end, it seems, you know, there's this um, relationship, which is kind of positional right like it's like there's the front end and there's the back end you know one is in in sequence that what from front to back is uh is the direction where the front end is is closer maybe to the user where the back end is not mm-hmm. but i think in practice it's probably more like you know the left and the right hand where when you have to do two things together you actually need those two things to coordinate together you know what, what you described about and this is what i think where where taking shortcuts sometimes can actually be a good thing is that you know if you say I'm going to spend the next three weeks uh, on a back end doing a specific thing. And then you find out that 10 days into the, into the, into the iteration, for example, you find out that, that it doesn't fit. The better approach to synchronize would be to stop the action and realign. But if you persevere, then you might overstep and you'll actually be out of sync. Like it, it makes me think that I think that there is this, the art of creating uh, cohesive organizations from development perspective is, is to create context where the two kind of work in synergy together 
Um, and I think that's where a lot of the, the tooling, right? It's like the tooling that allows the synergy to exist. Uh, I think that's a lot of the a lot of the work of actually creating systems where the, the, the where the user experience is kind of cohesive and integrated. So can I jump in? I, I actually have there was something that you said just as you just mentioned in there, but it's actually a little nugget that I'm uh, I'm curious to explore, and that is if you're ten days into like a fourteen day piece of work and you realize that it isn't right and it doesn't fit with the whole, the right action is to throw it away. And I feel like software organizations, um, and this might be a little bit off topic, but it's something that really is interesting to me. So please indulge me. I feel like we see the product being the kind of the code output, uh, even in agile environments. And there is an aversion to throwing away code that has been written. There's the, I would say that the, the incentive is to go ahead and persevere, right? Because you've now spent, you know, developer time is so expensive, right? These are days out of people's lives. So they've already invested 10 days. Why not, you know, just have four more days, just, you know, so you have it. When in fact, you actually have more if you just throw that work in the trash. Because it's, you know, it's, a, it's an abstraction that's not needed. It's a piece of weight. Uh, it's actually something that you now are going to own, uh, and it's actually going to be cheaper in the long run, and it's going to be more beneficial to your organization to not own it. Do you all see that happen, kind of play out, where people become attached to software that they've invested, even and and will make the decision to hold on to it, say, well, let's spend two more days to complete it, even though it's the wrong thing, like identifying which things need to be thrown away. I, I feel like we don't actually do that very aggressively to say, you know what, we need to not complete this work. Well, I think that's it's a really tricky one because I think whatever people might say, when you spend time working on something, you become emotionally attached to it. Mm. Um, I, I would, you know, argue quite strongly that, you know, whatever sort of person, however logical or rational or whatever sort of person you are, my experience has been that people working on things want to see them used. I mean, I, I think we're in a situation with version control where you can keep things on a branch, they can be useful explorations, things don't have to be thrown away in their entirety. I mean, I, you know, our charity is doing work for, um, you know, the National Health Service in the UK, um, one of the largest employers in Europe. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've noticed, you know, issues in the user interface that we're supplying them. And, you know, sort of, I was suggesting sort of some minor tweaks. And, you know, one of the developers has sort of run with, you know, like an entire big advanced search feature that partially solves the problem, but brings in a lot of other bits and pieces that I think it's kind of like, and he's done some good work there. It's great work, but it's, I'm, I'm kind of on tender hooks of like, okay, so I, I think he kind of ran further than I was expecting down, down that line. And I think when we actually have now found a much sort of simpler solution that just kind of like is a little, you know, rather than bringing an entire new cabinet, it's a little shaving off the side of the existing one. But I think that doesn't have to be lost. And I was, I was reassuring him that the work was valuable and that there is interesting learnings there and that potentially we might use this in a future iteration of the project. And now, of course, the way that software keeps moving on, just having something on a branch, you know, doesn't mean that you can then sort of magically, you, you will lose some of the work. In that case of doing the sort of the 10 days out of the 14 and so on, I mean, the real question is, can you get any value from switching somebody that fast? If they've spent 10 days and then realize that they don't need that thing, it's like, can you switch them quickly off onto something else where they'll do four days or might they as well? 
just finish up there and then leave that on a, on a branch. That's a pull request that gets closed and it's there to go back to. I mean, that's going to depend team by team about how quickly you can repurpose people mid sprint, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I guess I, right. I, so, so I, I absolutely agree. But the key thing is leaving it on a branch and not integrating it into production, Ooh. like not actually deploying it. Because I feel like when we see a feature, it's like we've got to get this thing done and it's done and, you know, we're just going to get it in versus now that we've learned how to do this, let's put that on a branch and mm-hmm. like, let's rewrite it, you know, and let's, let's, let's take a different approach mm-hmm. rather than just being married to the idea that we're going to get it right the first time. Or that, you know, now is the time for this feature because we understand the complexity of what it actually takes. It it is a tricky question. I'm wondering if our processes don't include enough implicit experimentation. Uh, And we talked a little bit about this on a prior podcast. But if they don't include some incentive to not deploy features just because you have them. I think from a business perspective, there's not a lot of models to evaluate certain things. So like, we don't have really any effective way of evaluating learning. You know, you can measure code by numbers of, of lines of code that somebody wrote and like how much code was shipped, but you can't really evaluate how much was learned and how much is persisted. I think a lot of this work around uh, supporting collab- effective collaboration is in building um, accumulative systems of knowledge, right? Like, because like, why is a good Git history useful is because it has a built-in mechanism for understanding history, right? It has, it gives you a way to, return back to time time in your project and understand the context of a specific change. And I think this is something that is really, like, good teams do this really well. Like, they, they will respect this because when, it, when it's necessary, it is, so, it is so valuable to have this. When you don't have it and you're a year into the project and something happened and then you are left de- using the only thing you have, which is, like, your troubleshooting skills, you're trying to figure something out, as opposed to going back and, and relying on that history, like on that knowledge that's built into the system. Like uh, what I'm trying to kind of get to is that there is an element like that's inherent to our development processes, which is this learning, but we don't have a way to quantify it. So mm-hmm. we have no way to really evaluate it. And yes. I think this is the problem that makes it difficult to throw away work because you can measure the amount of time that was spent but you can't measure the amount of learning that was made, that, that was acquired. Right. That's true. Yeah. I, th- I think, I think if you have, um, you know, a positive team environment, if you can, if you have your, you know, team set up stable and there's, you know, the contracts coming in and the, the money's there and everybody's there and you've got the team almost, you don't necessarily need to be able to measure the learning because the output of the team will, will be good. You know, that they're, they're kind of doing that in the background, but mm-hmm. you know, I think individual clients are not going to want to pay for learning experiences, certainly not at the rates that, you know, software developers cost. Although the throwing away is, is sort of, you know, uh, we're probably all familiar with the uh, Mythical Man Month book, which I think it's Frederick Books is the author, you know, build one to throw away, you will. Anyway, I was just in one of our, you know, we have a front end mob that we run weekly mm-hmm. do, doing all front end stuff and and CSS and so on, and, and um, we've done like a sort of a mock-up for the client, and there's this question about it might change and so on. I'm saying to the other developers there, you know, look, let's not get too attached to this. We may need to throw it away, and it'll be great learning 
to sort of restart on that. The danger is, mm-hmm. of course, it's starting to look quite nice and the client might get attached to it. And so <laughs> they want us to ship it. And I'm like, well, actually, there's all this other stuff that needs to happen. And, and so, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a minefield. It really, mm-hmm. really is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think one of the challenges with, and I think some some of the some of the business relationships that that we have, so this kind of client consulting company relationship, that relationship might not always create the fit to purpose team for a specific challenge. And you can not even have a you 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 know you can have a company that is that has a lot of employees, but their team and their team dynamics might not be fit to purpose to the problem they're trying to solve. Like if you're building a platform over a long time. You know, you want to be building, you're creating that space where that learning gets accumulated over time. And then it doesn't matter what necessarily the relationship is between the companies that are participating in this process. I think what matters is what are you producing as a result? So if you're, if you're working together and there's people from different companies, but they're working together and they're building this kind of an environment where you can collaboratively build things together and then people are learning about from the, from their output and that knowledge is being carried over and uh, people are you know being able to like stack their knowledge continuously over time like i think if you're creating that environment and you're building a large platform for example then you are creating a built to purpose kind of technology team to fit what you're looking to accomplish or that can include consulting companies and not include consulting companies like it's i think those things are kind of uh, secondary but yeah, I think it's just going to go back to that. It's like building a quality development organization to fit the purpose of building whatever it is that you're trying to build. So, you know, if you're building something small, you might have a small team that that would be able to build that effectively. You have something big, you could have a big team that's building that effectively. But building that team in a way that is appropriate to what you're trying to accomplish, I think that's the real challenge that companies struggle to do. Yeah. You know, in the context of, you know, of these real teams, then I guess, what can you put in place, given that you have, you know, back end teams, front end teams, and and each one of these needs to be specialized, right? This is kind of the power uh, of the way that, you know, people work is that, you know, we are allowed to specialize and there's power in specialization. So you can have someone who can be super focused on making sure that you have these high throughput back end systems that are resilient and fault tolerant and, you know, all these these wonderful things so that they don't necessarily have to have the entire you know context of the system that they're working on inside their head at a given time. You know, and the same thing, someone working on CSS or working on, you know, a front end system uh, architecture, which has grown to be a very complex problem domain in its own right. But these teams can be working in a context where the purpose is whiplashing around and changing quite drastically. And so how do you then keep that in sync, right? Because we've identified purpose as being actually something that's quite a dynamic value. How do you keep these teams keyed in and and focused and, and so that they're kind of locked in on that similar purpose so that they're going to be uh, adapting the systems for w- that they're responsible for and the specialties that they're responsible for to match that. Yeah, it's a good question, and um, I mean, I, I have my own biased view there. Well, I, think, I would, I would love to hear it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can't bear working on things where I don't understand in great detail how the end user is experiencing them or what is the effect mm-hmm. overall that's mm-hmm. trying to be achieved. You know, I've been working in. In the jumping backwards and forwards between industry and academia and the charity world for like 30 years. And I mean, I remember people commenting like, Oh, wow, you're a person who wants to understand everything. Like there is, I think there are some people who are maybe 
quite satisfied to just you know pick a ticket off the Jira board or what have you and and, and work on that thing. And if it's you know if the API specs are filled in and, and so on, that's it. You know, go home and you know they won't lose any sleep over it. But I, I think if you're going to be you know dealing with these changes and sympathetic that the, the, you know, the changes coming down the, the, the pipe, I think I think you need to have some degree of empathy with the people who are driving the changes. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, as we've been alluding to already, I think people get attached to what they build. I, and I don't think you can do anything about, about that. They, they will get attached to what they, mm-hmm. they build. And I yeah, think, we've all experienced it. It's so yeah. true. It's impossible think, to avoid. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we, we can try and caveat it, but it's sort of part of our nature. I, I think that there are, there are sort of the tools of the design sprints of the design jam, of these sorts of things, where if you can build something that's obvious, sort of at some level obviously fake, that it can't be shipped, but mm-hmm. can actually like tease out the the needs of the the, the user. Um, I mean, the design sprint book by the, 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 the Google team, they have an example with kind of like this robot for hotels, where it's like the whole thing was about they're going to have robots that like deliver, you know, um, toothpaste to your door, <laughs> run out of toothpaste. And they kind of like, in this design and that sort of fake, you know, obviously that would be a huge undertaking to make that as a sort of a production system, but they used like a remote control of the robot to simulate all of the key touch points when the client, you know, the person at the hotel would actually interact with that robot. And I think, you know, the, the, the same is true, uh, you know, when you're building these systems, if you can, again, going, touching back on the, like, you know, we don't th- throw code in that way. I think the even better thing is to not be building the code in the first place and is to be building sort of almost a non-code system. And then, you know, I mean, maybe some of you on the back end are not going to be interested in the results of what people have learned through this kind of user experience trial. Um, you know, before they were called design sprints, I mean, people have been doing usability forever. But I, but I think it's, it's seeing other people try to use the end system that mm-hmm. puts you in a place where you can be empathetic. I posit, I argue from a biased point of view, that I think the people on the you know, the back end of Netflix, you know, trying to, you know, optimize all the streams and that on the other, they need to like spend some time watching Netflix, you know, or at least watching their colleagues right. watch Netflix in order to empathize with how their work relates to the, you know, end experience. And then when those end experience needs change, why it's important for them to make changes on the back end. You know what I mean? Right, right, exactly. They have to watch through that kind of glass window where they can't actually help the person they can't give them any information. The only levers of control they have is through their own work, you know, making the things changes that they need to make on the back end, so that, that person is going to have that one of those users is going to have a uh, a good user experience. This idea reminds me of something which I believe is the case at Heroku, where they rotate everybody in the company through PagerDuty, right. which I think is you know kind of a brilliant idea, where you know the entire team is responsible for providing technical support to the end users. Mm. So when you know a problem arises, you know you get to understand what it's like to be someone who's trying to use the system. You know you get to expose to the satisfaction. You know when an issue is resolved or when it's working correctly or your your pager is quiet <laughs> for your entire mm-hmm. shift. Uh, but you can also get exposed to the, the, the frustration that you're engendering in the users uh, if something doesn't go, you know, quite according to plan. Yeah, I'm, I'm nodding, nodding so vigorously, I almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is movement in this direction, because there is actually um, a term that's been kind of floating around. It's, it's like a product engineer. So it's, mm. it's someone who thinks about the product. And they've been like these kind of people 
tend to have like the highest value in uh, in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, right? It's someone who is mm-hmm. who thinks about the product as an outcome as opposed to their code as an outcome. Like the, even in in like an agile space, there seems to be movement in that direction because I think one of the challenges, like to do that, you have to understand how you fit into the bigger picture. And mm-hmm. I could see it being really difficult. Like imagine if you're like working at a bank or something, and you know, being doing pager duty at a bank would be practically like it's just impo- impossible simply because the organizations are either too big or too sensitive. And so the way that the companies are dealing with that is that they have these crews, you know, like groups of people where you have a product manager working closely with a with a you know front end engineer and a back end engineer. So they're all uh, there's there's an exchange that's happening where where people get to understand the consequences of their actions a little bit more. They understand mm-hmm. like how things fit together. Uh, there is movement, definitely movement happening in that direction. I think it's just the more of it, the better. Because I think one of the big differences now is that the things that we make are very palatable to the users. And the, the quality of the user experience that users are now expecting is much higher than they were in the past. I think mm-hmm. like, the world is changing. Yeah. You know, we, we mentioned this kind of in the uh, when we were uh, talking before the show, but going to the University of Michigan, as I did, I was in school with a bunch of mechanical engineers. You know, their goal was to go work for auto companies, you know, Chevrolet and Ford and and everything like that. But their mindset was very much, I think, the product engineering mindset. You know, Mm -hmm. all of them loved cars uh, and wanted to build, be part of building the coolest, most comfortable, most responsible or responsive cars or, you know, for whatever for whatever de- definition of good car, I mean, and there are a lot of them, they wanted to design good cars, but they were into cars and they were into the experience of driving a car. So, you know, what's the equivalent then of that product engineer in software? You know, I, I think that every conversation that I had with any of the mechanical engineers who were going into the auto industry, and I'm sure there's some of them that were out there, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't about carburetors or or whatever. They really wanted to just get into the building of cars, <laughs> you know, in in some aspect. And I'm sure they all integrated in, in in some way or another. But it was a group that was very focused on that outcome. And, no, no, that, and that, so, that sounds very 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 helpful. I mean, in, in the UK, I'm hearing this term uh, like service designer a lot. Mm-hmm. Is that's coming up? What well, you're saying there, Charles, you get the feeling that people getting into software are not so excited about using their own it's not like like the, the car the car you know the kind of ideas right i, I want this amazing car and then i can drive the car and i'll experience the car but the, right and the, other people will experience this car that i've you know helped design right right and that, that in some ways like in, in software it seems almost like the software itself there's like a kind of mathematical beauty beauty of its own and it's like almost maybe more important that the other software heads around me like the software that i wrote than it is yeah. I mean, the user, you know, hey, I was at the conference and all the software guys loved it. So, I mean, you know, that's the, that's the key objective, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I, I it pains me. And I, I work with a lot of learning developers who are rightly focused on wanting to improve their skills and wanting to, you know, level up in particular tech stacks that are the ones that will lead to, you know, jobs and future financial stability and, and so on. But I, I kind of wish I could inculcate in them this desire that the the user experience was the higher goal than, you know, which bit of code does this, that, or the other. I don't know, maybe I'm being unfair to them when I when I say that. I think that they are, you know, uh, you know coding is, is, is hard. There's a lot of strange concepts to grasp and sort of 
just grappling with those concepts, you know, how does this work or why does this work or should I use this function or should I use this method or, or what have you. But I, but I, I don't know, I seem to come up against a bit of a wall when I'm sort of saying like, let's think about it from the user perspective. What does the user needs here? It feels like they want the safer answer of, you know, what's the you know correct solution here? How should this be refactored? Because, you know, you need a, a, a skinny controller and a fat model or whatever it happens to be. I, I don't know if that's... Right. It's like, what's what's going to make my life easier uh, in a sense of if I'm going to be maintaining this code? And that's it's important, right? It's very mm-hmm. important. You want to be happy in your job. You want to be happy in your work. And so, you know, you want to have the skinny controller and fat model because it's going to make, you know, it's going to uh, lower the risk of pain in your future, supposedly. And mm-hmm. so I, I definitely understand, but that can't be the only incentive, I think is, is um, what I'm hearing. Um, and a thought just occurred to me that I actually don't know that much about game development. I know the game industry certainly has got, you know, its problems. And I don't mm-hmm. know much about the development culture inside mm-hmm. uh, the game industry. I do wonder what it's like, because it does seem to be somewhat analogous to uh, something like a car industry, where if you know if you're a developer in the game industry, you're probably extremely focused on the user experience. You just have to be. It's so incredibly saturated and competitive for you know just eyeballs and and thumbs on controllers. Like I said, I don't really know anything about the game industry um, mm. when it comes to development, but I'm wondering if there's if there's you know an analogy there. Yeah, I, well, it sounds strong to me, and as much as my cousin. Uh, works in the game industry, and I've I've sort of taught game programming and worked through a lot of it. The game industry has got like a load of like they've really got the sort of user testing experience just baked in, mm-hmm. and it kind of like repeats, 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 repeats. There's this sort of constant cycle of doing that, and in in the more wider software industry, we sort of to a certain extent pay lip service to that, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sort of it's it's less I don't know it just it's yeah, uh, but, you know. but again, in the game industry, they live and die by that. Like uh, yeah. the code lives and dies by how it actually plays with real users. Yes, and it, and it, it feels like there are out in the in the general world. You know, there's a lot more user interfaces that where we just they just sort of struggle on. You know, for whatever market dynamics people need to use these existing vested interests, these banks, these supermarkets, these what have you, and, and it's 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 relatively rare that you kind of i don't know it's like it's almost like there's i guess the profit margins are too big almost you know it's not cutthroat enough but but, you know do we really want our industry to be so so cutthroat i I don't know yeah yeah but okay but so if we i mean if we see that they you know they do the the the, we've kind of seen an example of a couple of industries um you know the car industry uh the game industry which is you know kind of adjacent to where most software development happens, but they have this concept of you know exhaustive user testing, kind of the the pager duty, uh, if you will, where you get to experience mm-hmm. that. Like, so how do we on our team, or you know, and when I say our team, I mean you know anyone who happens uh, to be listening. What's the equivalent of pager duty for the applications that we write? How can we plug ourselves into that cycle of usership so that we can actually experience it? you know, in a, in a real and repeatable way. So interesting. So in the work that we're doing with the NHS, they have a similar program. So there's a lot of, you know, people who are working purely de- sort of desk jobs, but they do have a framework for us to go and observe in the hospitals and, the, um, you know, emergency rooms and, and so on. And I, I guess the, you know, how can we achieve that outside of those bigger clients who have those frameworks in place? It's, it seems like maybe we need a, a, a version of, 
the sort of the, the, the cycle where a different person gets to be the product owner, you know, and tries to represent what the users are experiencing each week. I think almost though, it's, it seems like we need more of that thing that you mentioned, Charles, which is like being kind of behind the, the one way silvered mirror is mm-hmm. some sort of framework that you know, connects the loop between, you know, what some of the individual developers are doing and, and their experience of how the users are, uh, are, are seeing things. I mean, you know, I think that's going to be difficult to introduce. I'll just I'm going to go back up a little bit with them. Um, I see this kind of uh, idea of agile, which says, right, let's be using the, the software as the thing that's kind of changing and evolving. And I guess if, you, you know, if you're already deployed and you're, um, you know, you're in maintenance mode for the beginning and you're getting that thing out there. And so you have your one week or two week or three week cycles where you keep on having touch points. And that's, you know, I think better than like touching once every, every, every two years. As malleable as modern software potentially is, it's too sticky. It's like you were saying, Charles, before with the, you know, deploying to Heroku or whatever. These are all guy ropes. And so you kind of need a really good mechanism for mocking out interfaces and having users experience them. There's a couple of, I think it's like Marvel app and Envision, and there's, there's some now some quite sophisticated systems on the, in the UX space where you can put together sort of a simulation of your interface relatively cheaply. And then, you know, kind of, uh, you can run these things and then have sort of video capture of the users interacting with, with the system. And, and almost like, I, I think that the difficulty partly that we have in the software industry is we're in this thing where there's sort of almost like there's not enough people wanting to be software developers. Partly with, I guess, the cars and the games is there's so many people who want to be game designers that they kind of, the industry can kind of sort of set the terms. But we're in mm-hmm. inverse situation here with software developers where software developers are so much in demand they can kind of say, well, don't put too much pressure on me. I'm kind of like, I'll go off to a different company. You know, we kind of have to sort of like herd the cats, as they say, into like, you know, allow the, these, you know, uh, high-powered software developers to uh, go in the directions that they want to go in. And so it's maybe difficult to impose something like that where you're getting the uh, software developers to really experience the end user pain. But uh, mm-hmm. so I, I guess what one has to do is somehow create a narrative to sell the excitement of the end user experience and the beautiful end user experience to the software developers such that they're falling over themselves and saying, yes, yes, I want to see how the users are using my software. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It makes me, it makes me think that um, if your process, because I think a lot of companies have this process where there will be some, there'll be a product manager, there'll be a designer, they'll design a bunch of mockups and they'll just hand it over to developers to build. You know, and there's going to be some back end, there's some front end. I think if you're doing that, there is no emotional engagement between the creators of the actual implementation and the people who are going to be using that. One way to do that is to try to add more of this actual, however you do it, you know, but introduce more of the personal experience of the users, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to go along with the with the actual mockups, so that people understand like. Oh, well, this person, like, there's actually be a person on the other end who's going to experience this, and their experience might be, like, create some kind of a emotional engagement between these two. And how you do right. that, I think there's, you know, like, that's a big question, right? But I think if the organization is simply just throwing designs over to the development, that's where the part of the problem is. And trying to address right. actually. That. That's a, a fantastic point because ultimately, you know, we've talked about emotional engagement and attachment to the software being a liability, but it, the reason it exists and the reason it's intrinsic to 
the way we do things is that's how things get built. We get an emotional attachment to it. It's the impetus. It's the driving force. It's literally the emotive force causes us to go forth and do a thing mm. is, you know, why we're going to do it is a good job. And so if you, like you said, Taraz, if you're just kind of throwing jira tickets over the wall, there is no emotional engagement. And so people will look for it wherever they can find it. And mm. so in the absence of an emotional engagement, they will create their own, which is, you know, good quality software that's clean, you know, quote unquote, clean code, because people need to find meet that meaning and purpose in their work. Uh, and so maybe, yeah, the answer is trying to really help them connect that emotional experience back to that purpose of the user experience so that there is no vacuum to fill with kind of synthetic purpose, if yeah. you will. That's a great. That's a great point, and, and I think so. The charity you know, Agile Ventures that I, I run, when we get things right, that's the thing that happens. In that we go for transparency, it's open source. We have you know these regular cycles where the charity client is using the software in a hangout with us, with the developers who've worked on those things, and the developers, whether they're in the hangout live or they're watching the video the week later, they see the charity end user struggle with the feature that volunteer developer has been working on and they make that attachment and that they are it's more than just i want to learn and level up in this thing it's like ah i want to make this feature work for this end user and that's you know we're very grateful you know very lucky to have these charities who, who allow us to do that level of transparency the difficulty often comes that i, I would see in our in our in sort of the paid projects where i would love to be you know, recording the key stakeholders uh, using the systems, but you know, for whatever political reasons, it's sort of, it you know, you can't you can't always get that. I mean, I think that process of actually connecting the developer with the person who who's, who's using it and doing that reliably, so that they can you know have that empathy and then get that emotional connection. I mean, it's just tricky. You know, the real real mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Nope, nope. It's 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 very hard. It's very hard. You know, one thing that we've deployed on past projects. Um, which I think has worked fairly well, is kind of putting a, a moratorium on product owners writing stories or writing tickets and actually mm -hmm. having the developers collaborate with the product owners to write the, the tickets. In other words, instead of mm -hmm. kind of catching a ticket that's thrown over the wall, really making sure that they understand you know, what is the context under which this thing is being developed and then kind of having almost as in a code review sense, having the product owner saying, oh, no, 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 actually, the reason we're doing it is this and having like a review process where the developer is actually creating the story mm -hmm. with support from the product owner. Because ultimately, if they have that context, then coming up with the implementation is going to be much easier. So it really is about facilitating that upfront learning, then being able to do the actual work. So that's that's something. But, you know, a lot of organizations are uh, resistant to that because mm -hmm. the product owners really want to to say, like, no, I want it to go this way. And I want to just hand this to a developer and I want them mm -hmm. to do it. And so kind of wrestling control and saying, hey, look, you've got veto power over this. You know, you're the editor. What we really want to make sure is that you're on the same page with the developer. You know, in cases where we have been able to kind of have product owners make that shift where the developers are owning the story, or sorry, are, are the primary authors of the story, and they're more the code reviewers of the story, if you will, implementation just seems to go so much more smoothly. 
you know, the questions, the kind of the, the key points kind of come out at the front of the process. And, and by the time you start actually working on the thing, the manager or the product owners has high degree of confidence that the developer understands what is involved in making it work. Getting that done, you know, what wonderful, as I say, sometimes tricky to do. I think, you know, in the ideal world, you have more of the developers involved in the design sprints or the design jams. The logistics of it are that, you know, can we afford to have all those developers in all of those sort of soft meetings? No, they, you know, right. coding away, they're coding away. That, that sounds like a great uh, sort of medium there. I mean, I think there's, you know, various organizations that, that do sort of their kickoffs where the, the stories are kind of, if not co-designed, then, you know, there's, there's sort of cooperative voting on the complexities of the stories and making sure that, you know, folks understand uh, the stories that they're, they're working on. And just, you know, you know your mileage may very different organizations are going to have different constraints on like how much time that the organization feels that different people can be allowed to spend on different sorts of activities. It's really tricky, isn't it? Mm-hmm. No, it is. It is. It is definitely tricky because any time that you allocate for people is is just that's the most expensive resource that you have. So you want to be smart about it. Which comes back to that that issue then again of like repurposing people. So if you've got that, you know, pers- the feature that you've worked on for ten days, can you say to that person, right? Sorry, actually, that was the wrong thing. Throw it away. Can I switch you over onto this other thing for four days? Maybe logically that would be a better outcome for the sprint but maybe emotionally that person's so attached to that you're better off not fighting that fight i mean th- this was the, b- the biggest struggle for me i think over the last 30 years is just, i assumed that the logical stuff was tantamount right <laughs> you know these things like the skinny control and the fat model that was we'd agreed on that that was correct and so that's what i should push for that's what i should fight for because there's sort of a truth or whatever and actually, I don't know, maybe I'll swing back around in another 30 years, but the, <laughs> it feels like, you know, you've really got to pick and, pick and choose your battles because, you know, if you don't get the sort of the emotion, the level of emotional pressure right on people, then the whole thing just explodes and nothing gets done. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 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 Sam, I experienced yep. something very similar. Uh, I think about this all the time. It's just like how many imperfect things are perfectly acceptable to people. It gives me a different lens when I think about technology because the more skilled you are, I think quite often you become more, like a lot of people become more pedantic about how they approach things. But in practice, the more things that you see that are not written, but you realize how really imperfect they are and how in many ways they fit the world very well. Like people use it, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. being used by many people in its imperfect state. And so there is something like this pull between perfect implementation and the role of this perfect implementation in the world i think that duality is is really right. interesting yeah there's a fantastic uh paper written by i think it was richard garfield back in the late 90s or early 2000s called less is more um mm. where he kind of talks about this exact tension and he calls it you know the mit school and then the berkeley school the mit school of software and the berkeley school of software and this is i think garfield came from the mit school but you know, was basically the whole thing was saying that the Berkeley School is actually right. Uh, and, the, and the name of the um, paper was uh, Worse is Better. And it's a, it's a really interesting uh, essay, but just talking about, you know, working things that are in people's hands will beat the best design every single time because those are the systems that get used and improved. And there's a lot more to it than that. He, he, he talks about this exact fundamental tension. And obviously, no system is 
you know, exists on either one of those perfect poles, right? You're the, you know, the MIT school or the Berkeley school. I think what he was trying to point out is that that exact fundamental tension that we're talking about, um, you know, the quest for the quote unquote correct solution and, you know, the quest for a solution. I'm going to actually have to go reread it. I remember it being an intriguing paper. Yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, I'll check that out myself. The, I mean, the, I guess the thing that it makes me think of is, is, uh, it sort of relates to a lot of the Buddhist philosophy that I read recently about this attachment to outcomes. I'm going to segue back and some might not make much sense, but we've got this, uh, discussion in one of our teams about this. It's sort of microservices versus, uh, monoliths. And, you know, I'm reading this DAO of microservices, which is actually, it's pretty radical in some of its suggestions we've been talking about in the greater than codes. Uh, Slack, where it's sort of saying that actually, if you keep your microservices small enough, then a lot of the things like code quality become actually kind of irrelevant. And it sort of almost argues that a lot of the things that we like about the agile and these things are are ceremonies that are only necessary because we're trying to feed these monoliths. So I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying it's it's a pretty radical position that it's taking, and and it's, it's certainly captured the minds of some of the people in our organization and. Um, some things I've been trying to like make some simple changes just to sort of smooth off some of the edges of the platform that we're working with. And I've had this pushback of like, no, we can't just make those small changes. We need to move to microservices. Because, <laughs> you know, all the things will be, you know, they'll great and they'll be perfect and they'll allow expansion and so on. And my immediate reaction is sort of, oh God, we don't have to like build microservices. To build things. But, you know, at the same time, you know, it's all about attachment to outcomes. So right. uh, am I attached to trying to, you know, automate part of my week that I think will have some positive goals in, in the future. No one's got a crystal ball, right? I mean, I, that's only a guess on my part. You know, if I've got some folks who are excited about doing this thing with microservices, maybe I should uh, empower them in that. And actually, we've started a, a mob on microservices, and we're kind of playing with this Seneca framework and, and so on. And then it's interesting, interesting stuff. I'm working my way through the, through the book. At the same time, while we've been doing that, I've actually delegated to someone else to sort out this sort of thing. And I've actually kind of address the problem that we would need the microservices for through a different mechanism, but still the microservices thing rolls on. And I kind of think, well, is that all a complete waste? But then actually maybe, you know, in two years down the line, it will turn out and that will be a beautiful thing that will enable things. And it's kind of just the further that I go on, the more I say, I just don't know. And actually, if I'm fortunate, if I can, if I can detach myself from caring too much about the outcomes one way or the other, I can just float along and enjoy myself. But it's a tricky, <laughs> it's a tricky thing when you've got to, you know, pay the rent and, uh, you know, pay the bills and so on. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't see any, you know, resolution to that anytime soon. And I come back to though, I just, I, I love people being able to use things and get stuff done. I'm so excited about that. And, and I guess I will keep pushing you know, all the developers I'm with towards trying to have a better empathy and understanding of the end, end users, because I think it's software is more fun when you're connected to the end people who are using it, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Microservices reminds me kind of of the experience that we've had with the microstates library, where because we're working, you know, we've kind of identified this one very small slice of a problem, a quote unquote refactor is basically a ground you know, ground up rewrite. If you've got a library that is a couple hundred lines of code, but it presents a uniform API, then you can rewrite it internally. You can refactor it by doing a ground up rewrite. And, you know, that's the kind of the cardinal rule or the cardinal sin is um, you're never supposed to do a rewrite. 
right? But if you yeah, yeah. So that's the microservices that they're, they're saying. It's like you, you should rewrite everything all the time, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they should always be rewriting it. Yeah, just should be bidding the old. Should be able to throw it away because it's a microservice and it can be re- rewritten in a week. And and if you're throwing one away, it's only a week's worth of work, and you can keep on moving. Like it. it's amazing idea. <laughs> so well, I'll have to I'll have to I'll have to read that book. But anyhow, we're gonna have to have you on again um, to well, explore these. Let's have you. We can do another one on microservices at another point. It was it was it's been great fun. Yeah, yeah, and definitely yeah. time to, to to wrap up. But yeah, really appreciate you having me on the, the show and uh, being able to discuss all these topics. Fantastic, and I can't wait to talk microservices. This might be the impetus that I need to finally actually go learn about microservices in depth. Yeah, no, I recommend uh, yeah Richard Rogers' book, The Tao of Microservices. We'll both get that in the show notes. Thank you. All right, fantastic. Anything we should mention? Any upcoming engagements or podcasts that you're going to be on? I think the main thing is, you know, we're always trying to we're on the lookout for charities, developers, uh, people who want to help uh, fund us at agileventures.org. We're busy trying to help great causes. We're trying to help people learn about software development and get involved in Agile and, and kind of like experience, you know, real software in action, uh, software development where you get to actually sort of ideally interact with the 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 end charity users and see how they're benefiting from the products and yeah you know we we'd love any support and help come and get involved in that if um you want to give a little bit to to open source and and open development we try and go for transparency we have mob programming sessions and scrums and and meetings like online hangouts every day so just come and check out agileventures.org and uh, maybe see you in a hangout yeah, and if you they wanted to say reach out to you over email or Twitter, how would they get in touch? Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, Sam at AgileVentures.org, and I am uh, Tansaku on Twitter. That's T A N S A K U U. Yeah, that's it. Get me on Twitter, Tansaku, or just yeah, Sam at AgileVentures.org. All right. Well, fantastic. Thank you, Sam. Also, if you uh, need any help with your front end platform, you know where to get in touch with us. We are at the front side on Twitter or info at frontside.io. Thank you, Taras. Thank you, Sam. And we will see everybody next time. Well, thank you for listening. If you or someone you know has something to say about building user interfaces that simply must be heard, please get in touch with us. We can be found on Twitter at at the frontside or over just plain old email at contact at frontside.io. Thanks and see you next time. <laughs>